Stay with us following this week's Crosswalk for information on Pastor Clay's new book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus, this is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. I don't know if they realize or not, but they have just called Jesus either a liar or mistaken, one or the other, and neither one of those is fitting for the Son of God. Have you ever felt confident, sure of yourself going into a situation, but when you got into it, you discovered that you were totally unprepared? First pride, then the crash, the bigger the ego, the harder the fall. The disciples were headed for a hard crash, basing this promise that they have made on what they think that they can do. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Today in our series, Jesus, the Real Action Hero, we come to the story of Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Pastor Clay is going to explain, we're going to see Jesus in a way we've not seen him before. We're also going to see the disciples at what turns out to be not one of their better moments. They thought they were ready for whatever came. And when Jesus announces to them that they are all going to turn their backs on him. And at that point, I don't believe the disciples heard anything else he said. All of their mind is consumed with, how could Jesus possibly say this about me? Listen, Jesus could say that about them because Jesus knew them better than they knew themselves. Let's just say they are confident that Jesus is wrong. But as we'll see, their confidence was misplaced. Now here's Pastor Clay with today's message. I've got a lot to say today, and uh, that's probably not surprising, and uh, not a lot of time to say it. At least it seems that, always seems that way to me. The time flies up here. But uh, anyway, uh, I just want to talk to you this morning a little bit as we continue in this study in the book of Mark, as we look at the real action hero, who he really is, uh, and we're drawing to the close of it. We're in the middle of Mark chapter 14, uh, but uh, today uh, we're in this, this scene, this, this biblically famous scene of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's in there with his disciples. And I want to make some observations today uh, about that. And some observations specifically about his disciples. About, the, about what was happening and all that too, yes. But specifically some observations about his disciples and how or what that means for you and me. Because if you're in, in, in it may not be everyone, that, that's okay, we're so glad everybody comes out, but if you're here and you are a disciple of Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus, you have made that decision, you committed your life and said, yes, I, I believe he's the son of God, he died for my sins, and by faith, I'm asking him to forgive me, to come into my life, and be the Lord of my life. If you've made that decision, then, then whether it seems like an old-fashioned term or not, you are his disciple. And so the observations that we can make about the disciples in the garden that night might give us some, some helpful ideas about our walk with Jesus, okay? If you have a copy of God's Word with you, open it please to Mark chapter 14. We're beginning this morning in verse 27. As always, uh, the text is up on the screen thanks to the great work of uh, my brother Tyler and all that he does in preparation for my sermon and the worship material and all that kind of stuff, but we provide this to help you. I always encourage you, bring a copy of God's Word yourself, open a copy of God's Word, but, uh, but we provide that to uh, help folks out. Mark chapter 14, verse uh, 27 through, and we're really going to go all the way through like 52, but I'm going to read the text today as I go, all right, as we walk through some of these observations because of the, the length of the text. Y'all all right with that? Okay, everybody's awake, alert, looking at me? Okay, 
Let's start with, here's the first observation that I want to make uh, today. It's this. There, there was an unfounded confidence in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, let's read it, starting verse 27. What am I reading to? Through 31. And Jesus said to them, and if you remember, if you were here last week, they've just come out of the upper room. They've just taken, uh, taken what would be their last Passover meal to that, together. And out of that Passover meal, Jesus institutes this, this new uh, this new meal, this thing we call the Lord's Supper that the church has been now doing for 2,000 years. Uh, they've just finished that. They've come out. Uh, they've come out of the city gate and, and they've walked across the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, uh, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee but Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Jesus takes them, as I said, out of the city. He walks them across, and he takes them into uh, what, what we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. Really, it was, it was an olive tree grove that uh, grew on the side of the Mount of Olives, where it gets its name from, of course. And it was into that, that garden, that, that grove, that he takes the disciples, and he... Uh, it was, it, he did that pretty regularly. If they, if they weren't staying in a home or whatever, they oftentimes would just go out and, and that's where they would stay at night. They would camp out there and then they would go back into Jerusalem uh, the next day. So uh, it's, it's part of their pattern. That's why, by the way, we'll get to that in a moment, but that's why Judas knew exactly where they would be. It was, just, it was part of their pattern. It was part of what, what they did. So they come into the, to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus suddenly just, hey, you're all going to abandon me. You're all going to turn away from me. And at that point, I don't believe the disciples heard anything else he said, at least for the next few months. I don't believe they heard anything about, but when I rise, I will meet you in Galilee. I don't think, I don't think they understood any of that because I think at this point, all that, all that their mind is consumed with was, Jesus just said I was going to abandon him. How could he, how could he say that? What could possibly make him think that, that, that I would do that? Doesn't he know how much I love him? Doesn't he know how much I've invested in him? By the way, these were the guys, right? These, these were the guys that had, had laid it all on the line for Jesus. These are the guys that had left their nets lying by the, by the water's edge, as Stephen Curtis Chapman says. These are the, these are the guys that had, had walked away from tax booths and family businesses and, and family to follow Jesus. These are the guys that had said, we believe that this is the Messiah and we're gonna, we're gonna follow him. At least they gave in to every indication of believing that. How could Jesus possibly say this about me? Listen, Jesus could say that about them because Jesus knew them better than they knew themselves. And he knew that their, their claim to never leave him was based on, on it was based on their pride. It's really what it was. It's, here's the way I've, I put it, I think, in here. Uh, they were making a prideful promise. Oh, oh, no, yeah, whoa, Jesus, whoa. Now, I don't know if they realized it or not, but their, their, their 
claim to not be, not, no, I'm not leaving you, no way, I'm not abandoning you, I'm not gonna do any of that stuff. It comes right on the heels of Jesus saying, you're gonna abandon me, right? So I don't know if they realize it or not, but they have just called Jesus either a liar or mistaken, one or the other, and neither one of those is fitting for the Son of God. And, you know, we, we know Mark says Peter says this, but he adds there at verse 31, all of them, where all of them were saying, yeah, that's right, yeah, none of us are leaving us, we're leaving you, we're, we're in this thing, right? And then uh, Mark records that Peter adds this little thing where he says, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Even though all the rest of these guys, you know, I don't know about them, Lord, they, they're a little sketchy, but if, even though all of them fall away, I will not. Don't you know that went over big with the other disciples? Don't you know? But you know what? They don't, Peter didn't care. Why? Because this was about Peter. And the same thing for the other disciples. It was their bruised ego. Because Jesus said, you're, gonna, you're gonna all going to abandon me. It was their bruised ego. It was their pride that caused them to make a, a promise, really, that they were not going to keep. It was, it was their own prideful ego that caused them to say, oh, no, no way. I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not going to leave you. There's no way that's going to happen. I'm with you in this thing. And they, and they made this promise that they were not going to keep. And look at this. I want you to, want you to take note of this. Uh, Proverbs 16, 18, and I don't usually use the message. It's, it's kind of a loose paraphrase, but, but I like the way it put Proverbs 16, 18. And listen, the Bible has a lot to say about pride, but, but just one verse, Proverbs 16, 18. First pride, then the crash, the bigger the ego, the harder the fall. Listen, that is so true. I've experienced that in my own life, and I can tell you that the disciples were headed for a hard crash. They're, they're headed for a, a hard fall because they are, they are basing this promise that they have made on who they are and who they think they are and who the, what they think that they can do. Here's another uh, part of the reason why uh, it was an unfounded confidence, because they were taking a spiritual slumber. Now, we'll read 32 to 42 in a moment for another reason, but let me just... Let me just tell you about it. Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells most of the disciples, sit down here and pray. Wait for me. He takes Peter, James, and John, that what we refer to as the inner circle. He takes them a little farther on, and he, and he sit, has them sit down. And it says uh, there in uh, verse 34, latter part of 34, watch what he says. Remain here and what? Say it. Keep watch. Remain here and keep watch. He goes off and he begins to, to pray. He comes back and he finds them sleeping. They've fallen asleep. And look what it says in verse 37. Simon, he particularly calls out Peter because Peter had particularly stood up and said, I'm in it, man. If I have to die, I'm in it. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Pretty bold talk a while ago, Simon Peter. Said you'd be willing to die with me. Now you can't even stay awake with me. Look what it says in verse 38. It says, keep, here it is again, keep watching and praying. It's the second time he said it, that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How many people can say, yeah, that's right. I know the, I know the reality of that. He goes off, right? He goes off and he prays again and he comes back again and he finds them asleep. Second time. And it says in verse 40, well, look what it says. It says, their eyes were very heavy and they didn't know what to answer him. Y'all are, well, he, you know, he comes up, he, he looks at them, where, uh, they wake up, and they're like, what, what do you say at this point, right? He goes off again and prays, and he comes back a third time and finds them what? 
asleep a third time. And in verse uh, 41, it says, Jesus says this, says, are you still sleeping? Take your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. Listen, we get the sleepy part, right? Do, you, do y'all get the sleepy part? They've had a big meal together. It's late at night. It's dark. It's quiet. And, and they're, they're, they're sleepy. They're drowsy. We get that. Some of y'all can fall asleep in here when it's not late at night, not dark, and not quiet. So, so we get that. And you know what? I suspect Jesus got that. It's not the fact that they were physically sleepy that was really the problem. The problem was that they were already spiritually asleep. How many times has Jesus said, stay alert, be ready, watch out, pray that you don't come into temptation? How many times had he said to them in preparation or going towards Jerusalem? How many times has he said, I'm going up to Jerusalem, going to be killed, going to be handed over to sinful men, put to death? How many times had he said that? How much clearer a picture could Jesus have drawn them when he takes bread and breaks it and says this is my body broken for you and he takes the fruit of the vine he pours it in the cup he says this is my blood poured out for the remission of the sins for for forgiveness of sins of many and yet apparently why they are spiritually asleep ladies and gentlemen they are spiritually asleep if they, they should have been alert, they should have been away, and I'm convinced that if they had been, they would have been prepared for what came their way. But instead, they were spiritually asleep. They were taking a slumber. Now, y'all, y'all probably know where this is going, right? How many times in my life have I made promises to God, promises that I genuinely meant, promises that I had every intention of keeping, just like the disciples in that garden. Oh, we're, we're in this thing. If we have to die, we don't care. We're in this. How many times have I made promises to God that I have in the end not kept because they've been based on me and, and what I think I could do, the strength that I thought I had? And how many times have I been spiritually asleep, unprepared for the enemy's attacks, and so I'm unable to, to step up because I'm not, I'm not filled up with his word and filled up with his power. Wake up. That's what he said. Wake up. So here we go. Here's what we need to do. Let me give you some ideas. First, realize that your flesh is weak. Somebody say, that's right. Realize that your flesh is weak. That's, I'm not insulting you. I'm not, you know, I'm just telling you that In our own strength, we are weak. We will fail. We do fail. Our flesh is weak. Yes, their spirit was willing. They meant it with all their heart when they said, man, Jesus, we're in this with you. We're not going anywhere. They meant that. They weren't lying. Their their spirit generally was sincere. They generally meant it. And yes, their flesh was weak. They were physically tired. They, whatever, but, but, they were, but they were asleep. And you have to realize that your flesh is weak. Let me give you an example. You want to share your faith, right? John, in a closing prayer there in a worship time today, you want to share your faith. Why? Because you know it's the right thing to do, because you know God wants you to, because you don't, I don't think there's anybody in here that actually wants people to spend eternity separated from God. So you want to, you want to step out, you want to talk about your story and what God has done in your life, or you want to hand out an iVite card, or you want to do that kind of stuff, but what happens? Fear, right? Does anybody, can you identify? Fear grips your heart in that moment, right? Your flesh is weak. You, you, you're not able to, to do it. 
compounding that, and this is going to sound like a contradiction, but stay with me. Your flesh is weak, but second, you have to realize that the flesh is strong. And by that, I mean the flesh, the, the pull, the pull of the things of the world, the pull of my own fleshly desires. Does anybody know what I'm talking about here, or am I the only heathen? Do you understand the pull of my flesh, right? I don't want to gossip, but I do, and the flesh wins. Why? Because the flesh is strong. I'm, I'm talking about in, in myself, when I'm operating like they were operating, just, just in their own self and what they could do. Whether, whether we're talking about the desire to, to trust God more with the situation in my life or to believe that he can provide uh, what I need for my life or the struggle I have with lust or whatever, whatever it is. We want to do the right thing as a follower of Christ, but we struggle with the very idea that we, we because why? Because the flesh is strong. Some of y'all are probably familiar with this passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul talks about uh, this struggle that this is. In Romans chapter 7, he says this. He says, so I've learned this rule. Paul says, here's what I've learned. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. E- evil meaning the desire to sin. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Come on now. In my mind, I'm happy with God's law. What's he saying? I get that. God, I understand. Uh, thou shalt not, uh, whatever. Yeah. So I get that. I understand. And I agree with that. I think that's a good idea. I shouldn't murder my neighbor. You know, you understand? Hey, I, I I'm happy with God's law, but watch what he says. But I see another law working in my body. What's your body? What is the body? What are you talking about? Your flesh. Your, just who you are in your flesh. I see another law working in my body, which makes war against the law that my mind accepts. <laughs> okay. All right. That other law working in my body is the law of what? The law of sin. And it makes me its prisoner. And watch what he says what a miserable man I am in this condition. I, I, I want to do the right thing. I end up doing the wrong thing. I, I don't want to do the wrong thing, uh, I, but, and I can't do the right thing. And What a miserable man that I am. And then he asks this rhetorical question, because he already knows the answer. He's discovered it already. He says, who will save me from this body, this, this sinful pull and desire that brings me death? I thank God for saving me through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, there is victory. I, I don't have to stay in this quagmire, this struggle of, of my, my flesh is weak, but the pull of the flesh is strong, and, and I want to do the right thing, but I'm not doing the right thing. There is victory, which is the third point we have to realize. Realize that his spirit is greater, ladies and gentlemen. His spirit is greater than your weak flesh. His spirit is greater than, than the strong pull of the flesh. His spirit is greater Look at this passage of scripture. Maybe you've read this, 1 John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There is victory. But we have to realize when, when we're operating in our own power, in our own strength, our own flesh, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that is, in, in my experience, in 20 plus years of ministry, that is the number one problem it seems that, that followers of Jesus often have is that they are trying to be a good Christian, do the right Christian. I need to do less of this, I need to do more of that. And, and, and that may certainly be true and there may be disciplines that need to be built in your life, but you have to realize that you are weak. You don't have what it takes. Some great author has written, spiritually speaking, you've taken a knife to a gunfight and you don't have what it takes to do it because the pull of the flesh is strong, but he is greater. 
Keep that in mind. That's an observation. No matter what in your life, God is greater. God can bring through this, but I can't rely on my own flesh. I can't rely on my own strength. I can't be a good Christian. That There's something else that has to happen here. All right, here's the, the second observation today. There is an undeserved burden. An undeserved burden. And not, not a lot to say about this or, or even the next one, but let me just read it. Verse 32. They came to a place uh, named Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here until I prayed. He took with him Peter and James and John, began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved, watch this, to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's a hard one to pray, isn't it? And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away, prayed, saying the same words. And again he came, found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. I know we just, just looked at all that. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping, resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. It is truly an undeserved burden. That is, we're talking about the sinless Son of God who neither deserves or has earned this burden, but he's going to take up this burden on our behalf. This is not the Jesus that we're used to seeing in the book of Mark, is it? This is not the, the real action hero that we've become accustomed to, is it? Throughout the book of Mark, come on, throughout the book of Mark, what it, Jesus has been large and in charge, hasn't he? He's been casting out demons and putting religious thugs in their place and, and performing miracles and, and displaying his power. That's the Jesus we've seen throughout the book of Mark. And now uh, here he is in this, in this seemingly vulnerable moment. And he says that he's in agony. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death in verse 34. In verse 35, he's falling to the ground. In verse 36, he's, he's asking the Father to remove this cup from him. This is not the Jesus that we are used to seeing. Listen, in some mysterious way that we can never fully comprehend and therefore, in my opinion, never fully appreciate, the Son of God was about to take upon himself all of the sins of all of mankind throughout all of history, all to be heaped upon his shoulders. It was a heavy burden. Here's the way Paul writes it when he says in 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin, had never committed sin, knew, had, had not participated in sin at all, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen, 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 listen. We might can appreciate that verse, but I don't think we can begin to fathom the full understanding of that verse. Here's the way I've said it before. The Son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. Sons being used in the generic sense, men and women. That the son of God became the son of man. He came to earth, he took on flesh so that the, 
us, mere mortals, the sons of men that we could become. We could be adopted into the family of God and become the sons of God. It was a heavy burden, and it was a lonely burden. This is it, right? Jesus is the only one that can do this. There's nobody else. There's no other perfect sacrifice. There's no other person qualified to be this sacrifice, and nobody is with him in this. Even that inner circle, those guys that he spent more time with and poured into in, in, at a higher level, even that inner circle, when he, when he asked them just to come a little farther out with him and to, and to pray with him, even they, they couldn't hang. They didn't stay with him. I, I wonder sometimes, and, and John, again, you just you, you said it so much this morning in, in our worship and the time as you were closing out in prayer, I wonder if, if we ever uh, stop and can fully appreciate what God has done for us, what it meant for him to bear this burden, this, this undeserved burden, so that you and I could take up an undeserved position as children of God. And I wonder if we ever, if we ever slow down enough to really stop and ponder and appreciate all of that, if it, if it would cause us to react differently, if it would cause us to be more urgent in our desire to share his story uh, and how he's affected our life, it would, if it would cause us to walk more holy, if it caused, all those kind of things, if we really understood and appreciated all that he has done for us. And, and let me just say this and we'll move on. Included in that is the realization that in, in our lives, in your life, when you have those heavy burdens, anybody ever have heavy burdens? Listen, no, no disrespect, but they're not like his heavy burdens. You ever have a lonely burden? You ever have something you feel like you're the only one bearing it and nobody else understands or nobody else knows it or nobody else is going through it? By the way, that's a lie. It's a flat-out lie. Everybody has their stuff. But no matter how lonely you feel, you're never alone. Okay, all right, let's go on. An undeserved burden. Third, an underhanded betrayal that goes on. This is just observations we're just making from there in the garden. There is an underhanded betrayal. Let me read it. And again, there's not a lot to say about this because it's pretty self-explanatory. But immediately, verse 43, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who, he who was betraying him had given them a signal He'd given him a sign, saying, whoever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, it's meant teacher, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. This was a cruel betrayal of the highest degree. As I was thinking about this, I was, I was just pouring over this verse, these verses, and I, and I was just contemplating this idea of, of Judas's betrayal. I was struck by the irony. Now listen to me, guys. I was struck by the irony that Judas would betray Jesus with a kiss, a kiss. What is surely the universal expression of, of love and compassion and friendship and caring. Now, maybe in our culture, I understand, you know, in our culture, men don't, you know, kiss men on the cheek and so on, but, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of, of that culture, and it's an expression of many cultures, but he betrays him with a kiss. In fact, Luke tells us that Jesus actually says something about it. When, when Judas comes up to embrace Jesus and, and to give him a kiss in, uh, in Luke 22, look what it says. It says, but Jesus said to him, Judas, look at that. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? 
with a kiss. It's cruel. And, and it was cowardly. And, and Jesus calls him on it, right? Jesus calls him on it. Look, look, look what it says. I mean, we read it, but look what it says. Again, in, in 48, the first part of 49. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me like you would a robber? Man, I, every day I was with you in the temple. I was teaching. You didn't seize me then. When it was broad daylight and the people were around you. No, no. Now you're going you're gonna to all bad and going to break out the clubs. And it was cowardly. And then I had this thought. I mean, I was feeling good about myself, right? <laughs> Judas, a kiss. Can't believe that. And then I had this thought. How many times have I said that I love God and then, in essence, betrayed him by my actions, by doing something that was contrary to his will for my life? You know what I'm saying? Is that too hard? Can y'all accept that this morning? How many times, and, and we, we, we do express our love. I mean, I know Jesus is not physically, materially here with us today, so I know we can't go up and, and hug him or, or uh, embrace him, and we can't, we can't even uh, kiss him. I realize we can't do that right now, but we do express our love for Christ, right? We, we say it, we, we, we tell him we love him, we tell others we love him, we sing songs expressing our love for him, and we should, right? Absolutely. We, sh- we should love him, and we should express that love for him, but but, but I wonder how many times I've been guilty of betraying that love by then going out and, and acting in some way by, by whatever. A million things that you could think that, that, that we're guilty of at times in our life that we know are contrary to God's will. And I, have I not in that moment betrayed this love that Christ has expressed to me? Okay, that's a little too heavy. Better get off of that one. But it is food for thought. In my own life, Clay, don't say you love him if you're not going to actually act like it and live it, and, and that will be expressed out in actually how you treat other people as well. All right, one more idea here this morning. There's an understandable reaction. There's an understandable reaction. Look at verse 47. Y'all with me? Bless you. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching you and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Not the disciples' better moment. An understandable reaction. And I don't mean that in a good way, by the way. I don't mean understandable, so therefore it's acceptable and, and it's justified. No, I'm saying that their reaction is understandable based on what we've already learned about them, based on the fact that they were relying on their own strength, their own flesh, their own power, and they were spiritually what? What? Asleep. They were spiritually asleep. So their reaction is quite understandable, actually, when you see how they react to this. And and here's how they react, right? Here's what it is. Here's what you see. First, there is a fleshly fight. A fleshly fight. (laughs) Peter Peter gets woken up from all the commotion, finally wakes up, physically anyway, from all the commotion, and he strikes out at at the servant of the high priest, one of the other gospel writers tells us, Mal- Malchius, I think was his name. By the way, I agree with my, uh, my former pastor years ago in Florida, Dick Whipple, who, uh, who used to say, don't even think for a second that Peter was that good a swordsman, that he could just pluck off a guy's ear in the dark. No, 
Peter was trying to take the guy's head off, right? He wakes up, the commotion, there's people around, maybe there's some torches, but there's clubs and there's a lot of talking, and he just starts swinging for the fences. He starts swinging for the fences. And I'm telling you, that is a perfect picture of how we often respond to crisis when it comes into our life. We start reacting and fighting in our flesh, in our own ability, and we try to fix it. It's something I sometimes refer to as the, the Sarah syndrome. Do you remember Sarah in the Old Testament? Abraham and, and, and God came to both of them and said, I'm going to give you a child, even though you're, you're advanced in years, you're well past uh, childbearing years, I'm going to give you a child. And Sarah laughs, and God says, why did you laugh? And he says, oh, I didn't laugh. Oh, okay, my mistake, God says. Unless I misheard you. And so what does Sarah do? More time passes. Well, you know, clearly God's not doing anything. Here, Abraham, here's my maid. Sleep with her. See how that works out. It's what I call the Sarah syndrome. It's this idea that God makes this promise, and then we go and try and fix it. We try and make it happen, right? It's this fleshly fight. Right, Peter's just, and, and Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. Put your sword, put it up. Hey, listen, this is how Matthew records this. I love this. Matthew 26, look what, look what Matthew says. After he tells him to put his sword up, he says, don't you realize I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us? And he would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Peter, if, if, if you think this is about, you know, who's the strongest or who can take who or, or who has the greatest might, God really doesn't need Peter to go all samurai on everybody there to protect Jesus. Do you know what, you know what I'm saying? God has got things fully in hand, but as Jesus said, how will it be fulfilled? What has been for thousands of years, the, what has the prophet said, from Genesis chapter 3 on, that that the sacrifice would come, atonement would be made, and how can that happen? Peter, put your sword away. You see, folks, listen, this is, this, is a, this is a spiritual truth that you need to get a hold of. I think I've got it up on the screen. Spiritual battles cannot be won with physical strength. You, you need probably need to just write that down somewhere. Spiritual battles cannot be won with physical strength. And listen to me, and you may want to hear this, you may not want to hear this. You may believe this, and you may not believe this, but I'm telling you right now, listen to me, your marital problems have a spiritual solution. Your financial problems have a spiritual solution. Your work issues have a spiritual solution. Now, the problems may manifest themselves in the physical world, right? Yeah, Clay, I hear you, but my checkbook is in the physical world, and it's got a big nada on there, and I got bills coming in, so the problems may manifest and do manifest themselves in the physical world, but ultimately in your life, they have a spiritual solution. It has to start with the understanding that God is on his throne, God is fully capable of knowing what's going on in your life, and God is fully capable of meeting the need in your life, whether you're a student or a senior adult or, or any of us anywhere in between. You can't, you can't fight this one in the flesh. It takes surrender of your life. God, I, I, I can't do it. I, I, I don't have what it takes. And, and can I tell you this? That's a big step. Because most people, most, most people never get to that step. Most people never get to, God, I, I, cannot, I cannot do this. Most people just keep on twisting and grinding. Well, if I did this, or maybe I could do this, or if I work this situation, and this might work out, and that, and... And God's like, okay, let me know when you're finished. 
Let me know when you're tired of struggling with this thing. And you're, but listen, here's what, it, here's, here's what it requires. And I, I am not making light of this. I know this is not easy. Here's what it requires. It requires surrender of your life. Every ounce of who you are, every, every class you attend, every minute you spend on the job, every penny in your pocket, every, every ounce of strength that you have, it requires complete and unconditional and total surrender of your life. So there's a fleshly fight. I'm going to get these tongue-tied if I'm not careful. And there is a fearful flight. What is, what is it he, he, he says? They scatter. They all take off. After Peter puts his sword away, they, they, they take off running. And Mark, uh, Mark mentions the, the guy that ends up naked, right? Right? Hey, it's okay. You can say naked in church. By the way, Mark is the only one who mentions this guy. Mark's the only one who mentions him, which is why most biblical commentators are convinced, and there's no way to prove it for sure, but most biblical commentators are convinced that the young man that Mark is referring to is himself, <laughs> that, that it is, in fact, John Mark. He wasn't one of the original 12 disciples, but Jesus had other followers. So most Bible commentators are convinced that, J- that Mark is kind of signing his letter there, that he's, yeah. And I guess he couldn't call himself out on it because he, he, he oftentimes didn't call other people out on it. But they scatter, they take off in fear, right? They're scared to death. They're, they're out of there faster than Usain Bolt in the 100-meter dash, right? They're out of there faster than the Kardashians to a makeup sale. You know, they're, they're right? I'm sorry, that's, that's not nice. They're out of there. They're fleeing in fear. And listen, let me say this. Let me get serious. I'm not, I'm not under, underplaying, I hope I'm not underplaying the fear that they felt, right? It, it is genuine. If they, if they stay here, if they stick in that garden, if they keep the promise that they made in the first, oh, I'm, I'm not leaving, I don't care. If the whole, I'm here. If they keep that promise, can I tell you, there's a very good likelihood that they end up on a cross later that day right beside Jesus. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, undermining the severity of what they're going through or the fear that they felt, which was very real. But listen to me, and, and listen, you gotta get your mind around this. I don't know if you're ready for this, but you gotta get your mind around this. There are worse things in this world than dying for Jesus. There really are. Y'all know, y'all know the story. You remember Cassie Bernal was a 17-year-old student at Columbine High School, April 20th, 1999, studying in the library when, when two other students walked in with guns and I think some pipe bombs and things like that. Dylan Klebold and Eric Lewis, I think was his name. The Bible on top of the stack of books at her table and the WWJD bracelet she had on were they marked Cassie to these guys. Eyewitnesses say that they came over to her and they asked her one question. Do you believe in God? as they pointed their guns at her. And the eyewitnesses said that she, that she hesitated for just a moment. Who wouldn't in that instant of fear? She hesitated for just a moment, and then she said, yes, I believe in God. And they pulled the trigger and shot her dead on the spot. After everything happened, Cassie's brother found what he thought was a poem that Cassie had written lying on her desk. And in fact, she had written this out, handwritten it herself. 
but it turned out that it, it wasn't actually a poem that she had written. It was, a, it was a paraphrase from the Living Bible of Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. And, and this, is, this is what it says. This is what Cassie wrote out just a night or two before she died. Now, I've given up on everything else. I have found it to be the only way to really know Christ and to experience the mighty power that brought him back to life again and to find out what it means to suffer and die with him. So whatever it takes, I will be one who lives in the fresh newness of life of those who are alive from the dead. Here's a verse that maybe you've, you've read yourselves before in 1 John 4. There is no fear in love. Perfect love puts fear out of our hearts. People have fear when they are afraid of being punished. The man who is afraid does not have perfect or complete it. He's not, he, he doesn't understand yet this love that God has for him and that, that we extend toward him. So that in moments of crisis like the garden, when you, when you understand your weaknesses and God's strengths, when you understand who he is and what his purposes and plans are, then, then for, for all of us, because listen, I... I'm sure the people that don't follow Jesus, I'm, I'm sure Cassie Bernal's decision to stand up for God, I'm sure it was a head scratcher. But for those of us who do, who follow Christ, we, we should understand. As the Apostle Paul puts it so powerfully in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Well, as I said at the beginning of our program today, the disciples' self-confidence was misplaced because they were relying on their own strength. As Pastor Clay explained, they were spiritually asleep when they should have been spiritually alert. As we examine our own lives, we need to honestly ask ourselves if we are often spiritually asleep and therefore not ready for the attacks of the enemy. If we don't, we can find ourselves guilty of betraying our Savior by failing to trust Him and walk by faith. We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their lives feel disconnected with the type of life and faith that they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback form from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy of I Get It today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. 
We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where you'll find what you're looking for. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.